Welcome, my friends. Today we continue our mindful Tanya teachings. And you're in, for, you're in for a treat. Today we're going to be learning some really deep stuff. I'm talking profound. <laughs> Serious Kabbalistic wisdom will be yours if you stay with me and you make it through to the end of this class. The Alter Rebbe distilled some of the profoundest ideas in Torah Judaism, as illuminated by the Baal Shem Tev and the Maggid of Mizrich, in a manner that informs, instructs, guides, uplifts, inspires, and really transforms the way we study Torah and perform mitzvahs, or the way we live our lives. The Altarev translates everything into relatively pedestrian language. Now, it's not exactly household words, but the language, the syntax that he uses is, let's just say, phraseology that we're familiar with from Torah literature, broadly based Torah literature. As a rule, the Alter Rebbe does not speak in what people would mistakenly call Kabbalah psychobabble. He doesn't like just talk about, throw terms at us. He, he explains things. He explains how a, a person functions. A person's got a mind, a person's got a heart. People react to things. People get excited about things. They have anxieties. There are things that bring them a sense of fulfillment and others that leave them with a deep sense of vacancy or emptiness. That's terminology that's part of the human condition. On occasion, the Alter Rebbe will take us backstage. He'll give us a glimpse of how this is discussed in the phraseology of pure Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah. Most often, we get treated to the backstage story in a footnote what's called in Hebrew a hagah, a gloss. The print is different. It's not part of the actual body of Tanya. It shows up in smaller print, and it always has the heading, hagah, footnote. It's not printed on the bottom of the page. It's usually smack in the middle of the page. And he'll comment on a particular word, sentence, or sometimes at the end of an idea. He placed an asterisk. And the asterisk will indicate that the footnote applies to the specifics that are discussed in the annotated area. There are those who maintain that these footnotes were written for the Kabbalist, for the person who is what we would call initiated. As the Alter Rebbe concludes the footnote, and he says, as is known, which is a, a fancy term for those who are initiated in the esoteric discipline of Torah wisdom. And so somebody for whom Kabbalistic jargon or terminology is familiar will now get like a cross-reference. So here we explain this in terms of avodat Hashem, of how we function. But you should know that there is 
the same idea as it is depicted or described or articulated in Lurianic writings or something of that genre. Generally, Rav Adin Yisrael's approach was that this is this is uh, written for people who are living in that world. That's, that's what he, in case you happen to be one of those people, you get a footnote. But there are many who see it differently. And I'll, I'll count myself amongst the great mountains and summits. Just put myself a little, uh, a little grasshopper in between and suggest to you that I think very much that we should be studying all parts of Tanya, the footnotes too. And that's why I'm going to dedicate the next hour or so to explaining to you the deeper meaning of this little footnote. And I'm not ashamed to tell you that the way I understand it now, as I'm giving you this, this class, as I'm presenting this to you, I never understood it. Certainly not as well as I understand now. I spent the last couple of hours contemplating, cross-referencing, and speaking to people who are wiser than me. And my primary goal was to understand it so well, to have it with such clarity that I should be able to explain it to all of you, regardless of what your background is, so that you should be able to understand and appreciate Dolorianic terminology, the Kabbalah ideas, and that you should be able to appreciate what it adds to the cadence of this theology that's being rolled out. And with this little preface, I'm, I'm quite sure that when this hour is over, I'll understand it even better. And as I shared with, <laughs> I shared with you many times, every year, I can't get over how dumb I was a year ago. And this is the beauty of Torah, endless waters. You plummet its depths and you understand it and you think you understand it, and then, and then you continue to study, and you continue to develop and articulate the same Torah idea in a deeper, more profound, and more simplistic fashion. Because the more profoundly you understand it, the more deeper your grasp is, the easier it becomes to put it into everyday language. What I'm gonna do now is recap. I'm going to talk to you about what we've said just very briefly over the last couple of classes because the footnote is based on what we said. It's the Kabbalistic alter ego of the very ideas that the Alter Rebbe spelled out here in this extraordinary 38th chapter of Tanya. In previous chapters, Dr. Rebbe advanced this phenomenal new idea, which really isn't new at all, but it's never, ever been stated so clearly. It was never articulated so eloquently until Sefer Tanya Kadisha, until Hasidus shone its bright light on the Torah truths that weren't as self-evident. The self-evident truth that I'm talking about is the notion that inasmuch as Bishvili, for me, for you, Nivra Ha'ilam, the world was created, and that each of us 
has a special role to play and that each of us should view the universe, at least spiritually speaking, in geocentric terms. That's not to say that everybody should dance around me or be in orbit around me. It is to say that I should see everything as orbiting around my mission. There's nothing that I can contribute to. No circumstance that I can do something about that's irrelevant to me. This simply can't be. Can't be. If I have something to say, and certainly if I have something to do, then it's not just a nice, appropriate elective. It's mandatory. That's what's expected of me. In the same way that you would appreciate, I think, the notion that a medical doctor who drives by an accident scene, but's on the way to go golfing or meeting a friend to go shopping, and he or she says, ah, I can't be bothered. Some people are bloody and cut up and hurt, but I can't be bothered. And they just drive by the scene. They would be held culpable. If it could be proven in a court of law that they were aware that there were people in need of medical help and they, did, and they chose not to stop and help, not because they were late for a surgery they were supposed to perform, they chose not to stop and help because life happens. That wouldn't be considered a nice thing to do if they would stop. It's part of the Hippocratic Oath. It's expected of them. It would be called dropping the ball, abandoning your responsibility if you didn't stop. That paradigm applies to each of us. Hashem created a world and its fullness, and everything functions precisely, down to the smallest detail. All of it is operating in concert, and you are at the center of it. Because when there's something to do or be said, or there's something that can and should be understood by you, and you choose to do something else, you're abandoning the responsibility, the mandate that Hashem gave you. And this is very real. And of course, very true. Not because you were given so much wherewithal and ability so that you could overcome all of the challenges and tests that were made for you. So that you could become all you can be. And then when you finally graduate from the obstacle course, you will be promoted to the highest place in heaven that you could have achieved. That's not the kind of geocentrism Torah Judaism believes in. Torah Judaism believes and teaches us that the world was created for a sacred mission and purpose, a dwelling place in the material world, and that you have a unique role to play in the actualization of creation, namely its intended purpose, and that dropping the ball doesn't just mean you harmed yourself, as in robbing your own self from your spiritual potential. Ultimately, you are creating a world and a circumstance that is poorer because 
you didn't make your contribution because you have a piece of that grand big puzzle. And Alta Rebbe talked about this in great length and he develops this idea, which is a medrash, the words of our sages. And the emphasis at some point in chapter 37 becomes about the terrestrial reality, the value of action as mitzvahs can't be performed in heaven. Whilst there is some kind of consciousness, you can't do mitzvahs. There's no verbalization and there's no action. And then when we completed this entire spiritual schematic, this whole eschatology of what Judaism believes in, Al-Talebbe began chapter 38 and says, and now we can understand why our sages place so much emphasis on action and why the deed is our Jewish creed and why actions speak louder than words and words speak louder than thoughts. And it's only in action or marshalling the terrestrial, physical, literal abilities and harnessing them for Avedas Hashem, for the purpose of serving God, of making our world a godlier place, that you fulfill your destiny. Now at this point, we're all thinking, kavana, intention, mindfulness, that's not what it's about. Because souls also experience mindfulness. In fact, when we speak about souls in another dimension, we describe their activity as learning, knowing, grasping intellectually. Mindfulness. So how important could mindfulness be anyway? And then this opened up a whole new vista before us because in the 15th and 16th century, some of the greatest scholars of the Jewish people, both in Spain and later in Eastern Europe, articulated profound Torah truisms, which in their words has always been known, that an action sense intention is a body sense soul. Very strong words. They also don't seem to make any sense because bodies without souls amount to a corpse. Is Judaism uh, a life filled with mitzvah performance, a morgue? Is it dead? Is it a collection of corpses? Seriously? <laughs> How does that fit with Hamaisa Huha Iker? The deeds are Jewish creed. And so the Alter Rebbe in Pedic Lamet Ches began to spell out this notion that keguf b'lei neshama doesn't mean that a mitzvah that's done mindlessly is dead, per se. But rather, that just as there is a vast difference between body and soul, so too there's a vast difference between the detail, the dimension of mindfulness and the dimension of words, perhaps empty, mindless words or actions which are not invested with a sense of purpose and not done or performed with something specific in mind, namely the intention, the mindfulness that I am now doing the will of the Creator and in doing so I make this world a holier, better and godlier place. So the Alter Rebbe said, Guf Neshama is a metaphor for the difference, the distinction. And from this we entered into the whole notion of the homogeneous nature of Dveikus. 
Devekus means to be woven and cleaving unto God as one, to be woven unto God as one. You aren't more woven into the proverbial fabric of divinity if you're mindful. Because the same God that wants us to do mitzvahs mindfully wants us to do mitzvahs. Both are within the frame of the fulfillment, the range of actualizing Ratzon Hashem, the will of God. And the will of God is not something outside or other than divinity itself, as we explained in our previous lesson. So the notion of Guf Neshama serves to highlight the profundity, the meaning, the depth, the beauty of a mindfulness insofar as a mindless action is concerned. And there's a tremendous virtue in Kavana. And that's because it's felt. And it represents revelation. Whereas the mindless mitzvah, although factually speaking, is connecting you to God, you don't feel it. And it doesn't resonate with that kind of oneness in an open fashion. The difference was we said in Tzimtzum v'hispashtus. Tzimtzum means contracting or concealing of the light. And hispashtus means diffusion or the free expression of that illumination. And we talked about the notion that in this world, divinity isn't available per se, not in mindfulness nor in action. We don't see God as it is. We don't even see the impact. We don't see the transformation of a mitzvah that's unique to the notion of avodat korbanot, of the notion of offerings in the base of Migdash. We actually could see holiness or see spiritual energy. We can't see these things. So even if you're doing something in the most exquisitely mindful fashion and you're totally harnessed and you're fully engaged in what you're doing and you feel so close to God, you're not actually any closer per se than somebody who is simply performing the mitzvah in a mindless fashion. Yet, yet that feeling, that fervor, that intensity is real. It's real. It's, it's powerful. It's meaningful. That's the synopsis of what we've learned. And that brings us to the footnote. So in the footnote, the Alter Rebbe now says that this truism, this notion that there is a vast difference between kavana, intention or mindfulness, and the mitzvahs that are performed with my hands, actions taken, or the words that are spoken with my lips, the, 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 the voice that is projected from my voice box, which is also a form of action, as we mentioned previously multiple times, Akimas Sfasayim, the Gemara says the movement of lips, Havemaisa, is considered to be an action. Although our sages viewed it as Maisa Zutra, as a small or minor action, nonetheless it is an action. And God forbid if a person is harmed or injured, they might not be able to move their hands about, and they might not be able even to move their lips. So you need some kind of control of your body's muscles to do something as simple as speak, although we just take that for granted without thinking twice. But all of it is a gift, and we should be utilizing that gift in the most powerful way we can. And the most powerful thing that any of us can do is to become an extension of the great creator of heaven and earth and its fullness. We become an extension of God when we are carrying out the will of God precisely as Hashem, Almighty God, ordains it to be.
And Almighty God wants us to use our minds. That's why He gave us a brain. He wants our mindfulness. He wants our focus. And a mitzvah performed with that mindfulness, with that awareness, with that focus, is much more meaningful. Now, doing something which is not meaningful by dint of Torah ordination, meaning God says, that's not my will. For example, eating matzah on the night of Pesach, which is actually chametz, which has already risen, and it's not matzah. It looks like matzah. It smells like matzah. It tastes like matzah. It's not. And I can eat that with the greatest mindfulness and in my own delusions think that I am so close to God and imagine my faith being fortified and all I'm doing actually is injecting toxicity into my soul, darkening my own spirituality without even knowing the difference. That's true. It's true that it's possible for a person to be delusional. But at the same time, if I am doing what Hashem wants me to do and I'm doing it mindfully, then it feels mindful. I feel connected to God. And of course, I really am. It's meaningful. And that meaningfulness cannot be underestimated. It's a big deal. So the Altadebbe says you should know. Now let's talk about things in a loftier, higher dimension. We've talked about them in the everyday reality. What would that look like in a spiritual reality? Here's a lousy metaphor. But it will maybe crystallize things for some of you. I'll make it very brief. So many years ago, this goes back well over two, two decades ago, two decades plus, almost two and a half decades ago. I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm still very young, but I was very, very young then. And I'm at this wedding. And at the wedding, there's a, an entertainer, a world-famous entertainer who's at this wedding. His name is Dudu Fisher. He's still singing, actually, 25 years later. And he's, a, he's an extraordinary entertainer. He's a Broadway singer. And he's also a chazan. Anyway, he says, um, he says I'm going to sing a, a 15th century opera for you now. Okay. So he sings a, a 15th century opera. It's an opera. I, I can't even, I couldn't relate. And then he says, and now I'm going to sing the same bars of music as they were translated into the syntax, musical syntax of rock and roll by Elvis Presley. And he goes on to sing an Elvis Presley song and he claims they're exactly the same music notes. The same musical notes with a slightly different arrangement, but the rises and rests, the, 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 th the theory, the musicology, the, the, the theory behind the music, it's the same theorem. It's, the, it's, like, it's like they say... Every song is like a theory. So it's an idea. It's a, it's a thesis. So th it's the same thesis. But one is within musical notes, syntax, frame, and sound of 15th century opera. And one is in 1950s, king of rock and roll. Same song. I, I wouldn't necessarily recognize it. In fact, I necessarily did not recognize it. I just took it. If Dudu Fisher says so, it must be so. And the point I'm trying to make is that the same truism, if you boil it down, not to the way it sounds on the surface, not to the way it makes you feel even, but if you boil this down to the elemental musicology of it, it's the same thesis. So we talked about everything we talked about in, in terminology, which if not everyday or pedestrian, is at any rate something we can relate to part of our common experience. We all know what meaningfulness is. 
We've all experienced things which were meaningful to us. You've all had, I imagine, a spiritual experience in Shul at some point. If you didn't, I feel bad. Sorry to hear that. You should have had some, some point something. Maybe it was attending a wedding, a chuppah. Maybe it was attending a brit milah. Maybe it was attending the ne'ilah service, the climax of Yom Kippur. Maybe it was the opening of Yom Kippur or perhaps the joy at Simchas Torah. Maybe it was sitting at a seder and singing the songs at the end, which is called nirza or halal. Do you know anybody who never really had a spiritual experience, never said, wow, that was like, I really connected. Yeah, this, I, you know, this time I learned about it and I contemplated, I really connected. I vividly have this memory of a certain individual who generally doesn't get excited about almost anything. And we learned about something. We learned really well about it. And he came to a series of classes. And, and then when it came time to do the mitzvah and the time arrived, and this person says to me, you know, it was really meaningful this year. It was really meaningful because I knew what I was doing. I understood the history. I understood the halacha. I understood the philosophy. And I understood the chassidus, the mystical, the spirituality. I, I, like, I learned it. I contemplated it. And I, it was meaningful. <laughs> By the way, in, on some level, all of the teachings of Hasidus Chabad were, were introduced and given to us to make our Yiddishkeit meaningful. Dalta Rebbe in Lakutatera says, Vyasisa Chag Shavuis, he says you have to make ordinary things into into whole into 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 into, into, into holiness, into a festivity. And then there's another place in Lakutatera where he says that you have to make it your festival. How do you make it yours? How do you possess it? You try this. You're going to do something. The more you know about it, the more meaningful it will be. Because mindfulness necessarily affects the heart. It makes things meaningful. That's not Kabbalah language. That's not esoteric speech. But what we're going to talk about now is really esoteric speech. And we're going to say that just as we suggested that the range of difference between body and soul, such a vast range, everybody understands that a soul is more meaningful than a, than a body, and that that range is also to be found between the mindless, rote performance of mitzvot versus the mindful, focused, engaged performance of mitzvahs. So the same way this is true in our world, it's also true in a world of sublime holiness, a world of sublime, pure godliness. Don't expect to be able to speak about this as you would the phenomena that's observable or understood because we don't even know what that means. We don't even know what sublime or pure godliness means. We can't fathom, we cannot grasp anything which is totally outside of our dimension. And this is beyond outside of our dimension. But it is the origin of our existence. In the, if you will, unfolding of reality, everything begins with pre-consciousness. And the pre-consciousness eventually, fil eventually filters into consciousness. And then I'm aware of something. I haven't really thought about it. It's just an awareness. There's a pre-consciousness and then there's an awareness. The awareness doesn't yet have any kind of specific 
It's not defined. It's just, it's a very, very raw awareness, very general awareness. This happens in nanoseconds. And then all of a sudden that awareness translates into something precise and definitive. I'm happy or not as a result of pain, pressure, good news, whether that's comfortable or not, what brings me pleasure or doesn't. And then I process that and it goes through my epiphany. Ah, and then I understand it. Chachma, Bina. And then I like, how do I relate to that? That's Dasa. Now I'm going to begin to relate intellectually, which ultimately leads me to form a bias or an opinion about something. And the moment I have an opinion, I start getting anxious or excited, happy or worried, morose or delighted. And I have an emotional engagement with whatever it is. And incidentally, everything that makes you happy has the flip side of anxiety. Because if you love somebody very much, you're also concerned that they should be safe and secure. If you have a great gain, there's the fear of loss. So there's always both emotions. And, and, and then you start to function. And then that function leads you to actively start to think about it. And then when you're actively thinking, you say, hey, you, and you just talked. You just communicated, and then you person turns around and you tap them on the shoulder, or you give them something, and then it all came together. And it was a whole process. And it all began with sublime pre-consciousness, but I can't even tell you what my subconsciousness is like because I never really experienced my own subconsciousness. So if you don't experience your own subconsciousness or pre-consciousness, do you expect to understand divine pre-consciousness? Do you expect to understand that which precedes the words? Of course you can't. Of course you can, but nonetheless we talk about this because we have a sacred duty of trying to understand as much about God as possible. And God wants us to understand. He's the creator. He can do as God wants to do. But God chooses to behave within the frame of a specific system, the very same operating system he gifted and equipped us with. And that's the meaning of us looking at our own flesh, not literally plasma, bone, or sinew, but us looking at our human condition, and as a result of understanding our human condition, I can see or grasp the notion of divinity. So God necessarily chose to create this system, endow us with a reflection of that system, although as you'll hear in a moment, the system can never be a precise replication, that's impossible, but we have a system that mimics the original divine system so that we should be able to understand something about God. So we're going to talk about this idea about the difference between mindfulness and mindlessness in Kabbalah terminology about sublime holiness, about a world of divinity that we don't really understand, that nobody can really grasp, but nonetheless we're using the Kabbalah language to talk about something so lofty, so holy. And the amazing thing is, it lines up in perfect synchronicity. It's a precise reflection and parallel of the very ideas we learned. So some would say, well, this is the Altar Rebbe demonstrating to you how the truth of Torah is found on every level. You could even argue that the Altar Rebbe is proving his point. He says, you see, this explanation I just gave you about body and soul, which obviously could not be taken literally, it is the very same truth that's talked about on a higher level. It's just that maybe nobody ever noticed that that's what the higher level was saying. So the Altar Rebbe could be proving his point. Or in case you were wondering, maybe the student who's studying Tanya now was actually a great master and knows the Kabbalah of the Arizal. He says, 
Hmm, very interesting, this chapter 38. I wonder if it has anything to do with, and Alta Rebbe says, footnote. I'm so happy you mentioned that. Yes, it's precisely the same thing. So whether this was a question you might have come to and Alta Rebbe has to kind of acknowledge your question and say, yes, good point. It is the very same idea we talked about. Or if the Alta Rebbe is buttressing what he said, proving it to you by showing that it's actually applicable in all realms. And it's a truth that's found in every dimension of Torah. Or whether this is just Alta Rebbe informing the deeper mystic of a higher level of understanding this, or all of the above, and then some. It gives you and I, ordinary peons, it gives us a window into something so magnificent and so glorious, so, so gorgeous, so amazing, so deep, so profound. Madonna's got nothing on you after this class. You're going to learn deep, real Kabbalah now. So, so how does it work? How does it work, this business of body and soul, that that's mitzvahs and intention of mitzvah, mindfulness and mindlessness? Al-Tabi says, yeah. Yeah, actually, as you're going to soon hear, that that can be translated into a different language, a different syntax, as orot and kalim. Literally, lights or energy and conventions or receptacles, receptors. So there's, there's these two realities called Orot and Kalim, and it just so happens that when we perform mitzvot, the technical element or dimension of the mitzvot, we're connecting to the Kalim, we're connecting to those very receptor or receptacles we talked about. But when we're talking about the intention, the mindfulness, we're talking about the Orot. That enables us to connect to the energies invested in it. And so, the truth of what we talked about, the veracity of this idea, will now be apparent to us on a very lofty, very deep, very mystical, very holy and spiritual frame. And now, the last, what you're gonna, what I'm gonna call preface, before we get into the meat of things. What is the meaning of Orot and Kalim? Literally, lights are photons and, and Kalim are diffusers, receptacles. That is to say, that is to say that liquid or solid, whatever it is that you want to hold, whether you want to consume it or it's paint and you want to apply it, whatever it is, you need some kind of container. So you have the subject itself, and then you have that which frames or contains the subject. Coffee, well, you need a cup of coffee, otherwise you have liquid flying in the air. That doesn't, if somebody asks you for a coffee and you throw a coffee at them, it's not very polite. It kind of misses the point. If they ask you for a coffee, they'll ask you for a cup of coffee. Not, can I have some coffee? Here's some coffee. The cup is very important. So let's talk about energy in a more spiritual way. Let's not talk about liquid. Let's not talk about coffee or oatmeal. Let's talk about the notion of a sentiment or an idea. So in order for that sentiment to be meaningful, suppose it's a, a loving sentiment, a sentiment in which I express my care, my concern, my love, my endearment 
for somebody or something, I'd have to use words. So the words would be called a keli because the words are delivering a sentiment. A keli without any meaning behind it is, well, kind of dead. It's actually meaningless. It doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't do the job. I mean, suppose that somebody is reading, reading words somebody else wrote to you. I love you. You are the greatest. I'm so happy we met. How do you feel? Not very good. Not nearly as good as a person you love who comes to you and says to you, I love you so much. I care about you. You complete me. I was, I was a basket case until I met you. I can never thank you for your presence and they describe and extol your virtues. Now what if we have a, a robot? Today, they have computers that are so intelligent. You can have a whole conversation without even realizing you're talking to a computer. They're doing this already. Some of the people you're speaking to at the customer service line are not actually people, they're just computers. They know what to tell you. And they'll say, oh, that's a really difficult question. I'm gonna pass you on to a manager. And you don't even know you just spoke to a person. You go to the manager and said, you know, that uh, person who just took my call was not very helpful. And the manager will just, you know, chuckle and play along. Yeah, we'll have to deal with that. But it's not a person at all. It's brilliant. But suppose you knew that that person said, oh, I'm so sorry you had a difficult time. Now, when you're talking to a person who says that you appreciate the sentiment, even if they're not very helpful, but what if you find out that it's just a computer? It's meaningless. It's meaningless. It actually is meaningless. Why? Because meaning is when there is sentiment invested. That's about when you found out that somebody who was telling you all kinds of things was lying to you and never meant the word they said. It doesn't feel very good. But suppose a person has very deep and profound sentiments, but they never told you. They never told you. How many people have I counseled over the years who had troubled relationship with their parents? It's almost like a textbook. And then the parent dies. And, and the parent told somebody else that they were proud of their child, but they never told the person. And the people are so distraught. That all they wanted was a little bit of appreciation. They wanted just to be validated. And their father and mother never validated them, never said to them, I'm proud of you, I love you. Never said those words. And even though they find out later that the parent had great love for them, somehow they feel robbed because orot, sentiments, never conveyed, aren't meaningful, don't leave an impact. We really need to have both sentiment and language. In fact, if a person is to use very, very sophisticated words, but doesn't understand a word they're saying, then it doesn't make any sense and actually contradicts themselves. <laughs> that presentation will be meaningless. And if somebody uses much simpler phraseology, but they actually know what they're talking about, you know it. It's Orot and Caleb. 
one of the early Kabbalistic works, he talks about the idea of Orot and Kalim as pure white light, or really light that is colorless. And those photons filter through a glass. So you're seeing red light, blue light, green light, yellow light, but it's really neither, it's none of the above. It's not red, nor green, nor blue. The glass, the diffuser, the filter has a color. The light itself is pure. So God isn't Chochmah or Bina or Das. God doesn't have intelligence. Now I'm going to, oh, I got an idea. And then they're going to develop this idea. These are all Kalim. These are all mechanisms that, if you will, God is using. I love, even if I didn't tell you about it. Or I'm angry if I didn't tell you about it. It's good to be communicative. It's good to communicate. That's the idea of Kalim. The words are those Kalim. So there's Orot and there's Kalim. And now we get to the subject at hand. What everything I just told you is a huge problem when we're speaking about God. Because terminology of Orot and Kalim means there are words, they are not me, I can co-opt or use those words. And some people are wordsmiths, they're gifted, they're able to use, string together the right syllables. They know how to communicate. And some people, it's not their gift. They don't know how to communicate. And some people are great communicators, but they are indifferent individuals. They don't know how to care. They have all the kalim, no orot. They don't care about anybody and anything. They are entirely mean-spirited, selfish individuals. Oh, they know how to make you feel good. They're masters of communication and deception. <laughs> A friend of mine who met uh, both President uh, Clinton and President Obama said to me like this. I mean, these are both very, very charismatic individuals. I'm not talking about their character or personality, whether you like them or dislike them, that's irrelevant. That's objectively speaking. He said, when you met Bill Clinton, he made you think you were important. He made you feel important. He was a very, he is a very gifted communicator. Very gifted. He said, Obama would make you feel that he is important. He's a very gifted communicator. He knew how to exude power, confidence, sense of calm. It's a gift. He had that gift. He has that gift. So people can use gifts in different ways. But that's an example of two people who are excellent at communicating. He needs you to do what he wants, so you are bewitched, amazed that this guy has got it all together. He knows exactly what he wants. He knows exactly how to say it. He is able to make me feel like, yes, I believe in him. That's a gift. A person who can make you feel really important. I feel really good now. That's a gift. Did either of the two actually care about you? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. I have my personal doubts. So they were masters of Caleb. But did they really care? Did they really shed a tear? Did they really stay up at night worrying about you? I don't think so. 
And you might have somebody who doesn't communicate very well, doesn't even inspire confidence. But that person cares about you, really cares about you. And you know that they really care about you, and you really care about them. That's a, that's a light situation, not a convention situation. Which, is, of course, is true. The light is the truth. The diffusion is the deception. But most often, if lights cannot be diffused, we're in the dark. So Orot and Caleb have to get married so that we actually have, so to speak, a family. When you have the, the fusion of the frame and the idea, then you have an equation. Then you have a thesis, a theorem, an idea that can be shared and passed on. But the idea needs to be framed somehow. So it's a keli, like a container that would have inside it fuel, paraffin or oil, and a wick. And then there's an energy, there's a light, there's a candle burning, there's a lamp. And the lamp sheds light, and the lamp sheds warmth, and the lamp is beautiful, but without the container holding the fuel and the wick, you wouldn't have the light. It would simply disappear. It needs to be framed by something. If I have an idea, but I don't speak your language, I'll never be able to get that idea passed on to you because I don't have the kalim, I don't have the ability. In all of these examples, the kalim are mechanisms outside of us that we use. Whether you use the words of the Pardes Rebbeinim, you talk about the colored glass. It's not me, said the water or said the light. It's something I'm using. It's a platform I'm marshalling, I'm harnessing in order to spread the light, diffuse the light in a particular way. But it's not really me. It's something outside of me. So whether they're words or a Hallmark card that had beautiful sentiments and I went through 50 cards till I chose the one that I felt best reflected my sentiment, at the end of the day, it doesn't do the same when you buy yourself a card or when somebody gives you a card and says, I spent hours looking for the right card for you. I'm not such a poet. I'm not so articulate, but I found the card that I felt said it best for me. They say, wow, that's so touching. What's so touching? Go to the store and buy yourself a card. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't convey anything. I love myself. Everybody loves themselves. That doesn't make us feel better. We feel bad when we don't love ourselves, but you don't feel good loving yourself. You feel good when you earn the love of others. That's the way God created us. So the whole notion of Orot and Kalim shouldn't be even discussed. It shouldn't be applicable when we come to a higher or more sublime reality, because within a sublime reality, there is nothing other than God. In order for there to be something other than God, so to speak, there has to be a concealment of God's existence. We have to have what we call a vacancy. And in that vacancy, and in that emptiness, and in that, that concealment of divinity, all of a sudden there can be an other, something that is other than God. But when we talk about Pre-consciousness, we talk about the highest level of divinity, which is called the world of Atzilut. In Atzilut, there cannot be Orot and Kalim. There is nothing else. There's only Or. 
So the Alter Rebbe says now that this very idea that the difference between body and soul as being the paradigm for the difference that's between actions taken in a mindless fashion or actions done performed in a mindful fashion. And he said that even though that there's a world of difference between them, it's not in the dveikut, it's not in the objective reality, but in the subjective experience. So despite the fact that both, objectively speaking, enable you to come face to face with God or become an extension of the will of God in this world, that's what mitzvahs are, mechanisms through which the world is as God wants it to be. Where there is a difference is where that radiance is seen and felt. That's called tzimtzum, concealment and espashtos diffusion. Says the Alter Rebbe now, this notion, this idea, is actually talked about in the Eitz Chaim. Eitz Chaim is one of the most mystical holy books ever written. It is the writing of Rabbi Chaim Vital, in which he recorded what is considered to be the most authentic iteration of Lurianic Kabbalah, the teachings of the Arizal, the greatest modern Kabbalist, the individual who's responsible for the reclassification of the Kabbalistic system, and ultimately it is the Arizal's teachings that reign supreme and are, if you will, the final word in all areas of the esoteric and mystical discipline of the Jewish people. You could call him a posik achron, it's the final word of the Kabbalah truths, the spiritual truths of our Torah. Like it says in Eitz that the intention of a mitzvah, and I want to emphasize, we described this in great detail in our previous lecture, in the previous class. The idea of intention of a mitzvah does not necessarily mean the passion. It does not necessarily mean the fervor. It does not necessarily mean the excitement or exuberance. That's called Ava It doesn't mean the awe and the reverence. It means mindfulness, the kavona, that what I am about to do, whether I feel it or not, what I am about to do by virtue of the Torah truth is an act of holiness. It is an act of connection. It is an act of fulfillment and obedience to the creator of heaven and earth. And when I do this mitzvah, such and such is about to happen. Whether I see it or not, I believe it. But now I also know it. And when I'm mindful of this, and then I go ahead and do the mitzvah, I'm doing it automatically with a greater sense of reverence. And I'm obviously excited to do it because I'm mindful. And most importantly, we emphasize the primary essence here of this mindfulness is the awareness that I am doing this in order to cleave onto God, to be woven as one with God. With a knowledge, with a certitude that doing this does that for me. Or when somebody is studying Torah. If you are reading words of Torah and you don't understand a word you're saying, you're wasting your time. The oral Torah, the teachings of Torah have to be understood in your mind on some level. On some level, if you don't understand it at all, you're wasting your time. So obviously a person has to be mindful. There has to. Torah study necessarily is a mindful activity. If I'm just sitting like a, like, like a, as they say, a, a chicken at Kaporis. I don't know what's going on. Maybe they're swinging me over somebody's head. I have no clue what's flying here. 
I mean, going in circles, but I don't know. I'm not clued in. The chicken is never really part of the kaparot experience. The chicken is the only one who has no clue of what's about to happen to him. If you study Torah like a kaparot chicken, you don't know one word you're saying. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm reading words and I'm saying things. I have no clue of what I'm doing or saying. You're not studying Torah. You got to do the best you could. And of course, there are levels and levels, endless levels and dimensions of understanding. Baal Rebbe says when a person has kavonus hamitzvahs, a mindful experience. It's meaningful on a mindful level, on a consciousness level. When somebody is having a Talmud Torah experience, they're studying, they're grasping a profound Torah idea. He says the Eitz Chaim, the Madregas Ha'or, ah, now you're in the dimension of light. The Gufa Mitzvahs, but the body of the Mitzvahs, Hein Madregas Ubechinas Kalim. That's the Kalim. Remember the or in the Kalim we talked about? That's the, the or is the mindfulness. It's lit up. I'm experiencing a mindful connection with God. I feel connected. I know what I'm doing. Or I have no clue what I'm doing. Why are you doing that? Do I know whatever makes my parents happy, my in-laws happy, my wife happy, my kids happy? I'm going through the motions. Makes the rabbi happy. I don't know. You happy now, rabbi? I chumped in your matzah. I ate your matzah. Okay. Could I go back to... No, 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 you got to say, oh, got to stay at the Seder. Okay, fine, I'll stay at the Seder. Why am I doing I don't know why I'm doing this. You know, there's Jewish people. We came out of Egypt. I don't know what you're talking about. What's that about? So, but I ate matzah. I did, I did what I'm supposed to do. So when the actual, the functional element, the functional dimension of the eating the matzah in the right amount of time, at the right time, that is called Bechinas Kalim. That's the convention. That's the vessel. That's Bechinas Tzimtzum. That's God's light being contracted. It's not a light or illuminated, lit up experience. That's like a, quote unquote, a darker experience, a limited experience. It's godly, but it's limited. So what did the Altar just say here? He just quoted the Eitz Chaim. And what the Eitz Chaim said is that the very difference that the Altar explained, he explained the words of, this, of our sages, like the Tzedel Derech and uh, Rebbe Zayu Mifono and... Uh, and uh, the Akedis Yitzchak and the brought down by the Shalom, all these were these different teachings about Guf B'lein Neshama. We explained that the idea of a mitzvah as the body and the kavana, the intention as the soul, is explaining, is clarifying the distinction, the difference in how lit up an experience of, of, of what a kind of experiential holiness you just were able to engage in versus a functional, technical, godly experience, but it didn't have an experiential value to you. It didn't, didn't feel virtuous or meaningful. He says, well, that's exactly what it says in the Eitz Chaim. Eitz Chaim says mindfulness is or is light, and doing act of mitzvah is kalim. But of course, what in heaven does that mean? What does he mean it's kalim? How could it be it's kalim? There's no kalim in heaven. How could it be kalim? It's all or. So the Alter Rebbe says, shal ha'or nishavu kalim that through diminishing the intensity or the light, the kalim are created, as it's known, to those who are steeped in the mystical and esoteric discipline of our Holy Torah. Okay, what does that mean? What does that mean by limiting the light kalim are thusly created? So let's use the following metaphor. Suppose I have a stream of consciousness. I have an idea, an awareness about whatever it might be. Maybe it's an idea of how I could turn a profit. 
very technical. Maybe it's an idea of how, how I could get away with something and not get into trouble. Maybe it's an idea of how I could get somebody to like me or get somebody to do something I wanted them to do. Or it could be a very lofty spiritual holy idea or an idea of how I can actually inhibit this disease. I can create a vaccine or I know how to create whatever the idea might be. It's a stream of consciousness. It's a, it's a, it's a, a profusion of creativity, what we call an epiphany. There's, there's, there's brain activity, metaphorized as, let's say, light. Clarifies, a flash of light. So, wow, I'm getting this idea. And suppose that I want to convey this idea. I have this deep idea and I want to convey that. I'm excited to convey this idea. I know that in order to be able to convey an idea, I need to be able to communicate it to you. Suppose you speak a particular language. Let's say I can articulate myself in, in Yiddish, in Hebrew, in English, very little Spanish, even less Russian. But some of the languages and Aramaic. There's the languages I can articulate. So really, let's say in uh, English, it's probably my easiest tongue that I can articulate myself in. Uh, Hebrew, Yiddish, more or less the same. Aramaic, a little less. And then, you know, Spanish, and that's just barely a few words, and a few words in Russian. So I, I, these are languages. And suppose, suppose it was like a simple thing as I just realized that you're going to be in danger. I just realized that. It just hit me like a ton of bricks that that precise spot is where you are in danger, in mortal danger. And it just came. There's a stream of consciousness. But I have a problem. You only speak Russian, let's say. It's all you speak. If I say, hey, you look at me like, yeah, what? I have 10 seconds to tell you, watch out. Get out of the way. How am I doing that? So one of the phrases that I still remember in Russian is, Astarozhna, which is something like, beware, watch out. <laughs> I remember that because when I was in Russia, the doors of the subway, you know, in, in, in Brooklyn when I was a kid, the doors of the subway, they stand by, doors closing, or stand away, doors closing. Something you never hear what they're saying. The garbled, garbled sound. And go figure, in this former Soviet Union, there was beautiful subway stations, crystal clear sounds. Astarozhna, dve zakravaitsa. Watch out, the doors are closing. So I remember that phrase. And I see this guy and I know or I see that something is, a chunk of something is about to fall and if this guy doesn't get out of the way, he's dead. Okay, it's, it's a nanosecond takes me to see this and process it and I'm, it's, my head is exploding with the enormity of what I'm about to see somebody split in half, literally. And I scream, I have to remember now, what language does he speak? And in a nanosecond, I remember it's Russian. I'm like, Astarozhna! And I scream, and the guy looks up and ducks and saves his life. So the idea came to me. It was very intense. It was accompanied by fear and excitement and, and who knows what other kind of range of feelings. Very intense, but I needed to take all that intensity, and I had about three seconds to articulate myself in a meaningful way. Now, in order to articulate myself, I needed to get away from all the excitement, away from all the intensity, away from all the fear and anxiety. Have you ever been so frightened that you couldn't actually function? Have you ever been so scared or so excited that you couldn't open your mouth? You couldn't find your words? You forgot how to say something? Don't tell me no. We've all been there. So if you know that you need to communicate now, 
at the same time, your mind is exploding with things that you have to do and, and the enormity of what's going on. You're also trying to limit all of that down into something practical. Two words like, hey, watch out. And the person hopefully is smart enough to look up and notice and gets out of the way literally in a split second. So what's needed to be able to communicate this, to be able to tamp all that intensity down, to be able to tamp it all down and not to let it control you. Instead, for you to control, you have to restrain it because otherwise it overwhelms you. You need to restrain and control it. One is what we call in the language of Kabbalah, hispashtus, expression, and the other is tzimtzum, holding it in, reining it in. So when we're talking about in the sublime level of Atsilas, of course there are no Caleb and Atsilas. How could there be Caleb and Atsilas? Nothing outside of God. There isn't the past, present, and the future. There isn't an idea that was had and then a decision that was made. None of this is mute. All that's moot. All the notions of the way we think has nothing to do with the way things are in Atsilas. And Atsilas has pure divinity. When we think, I have an idea, let me think about it, develop it, analyze it, I reach a decision. None of that is, is possible in Atsilas. So how do we have Chachman of Atsilas and Bina of Atsilas and Das? It's all, it's all a metaphor. It's not literal. It gives us some understanding. So when I'm developing an idea, I also at the same time as developing the idea, I want to communicate this idea. I'm not interested in just thinking of things for myself or having great ideas. I want you to know about this because I love you, because I care about you, because it will make me feel good when you know about this too. For whatever reason, it could be a variety of motives I have, but I want to communicate. So when I want to communicate, I also need not only to have the idea, to give birth of the idea, to allow the idea to explode and express itself, I also need to mitigate, limit the exact opposite, so that I can eventually convey it to you in Kalim. But in order for it to go into Kalim, namely into words, I first have to have the ability within my creative process to limit to. So within the creative process is the possibility of building and developing, mushrooming and expanding, and at the same time, in a subtle way, it's accompanied by the ability, the talent, the, the, the wherewithal to restrain, to limit, not to let it continue to mushroom and explode and express because I'll be nowhere then. Both are true at the same time. One is called orot, light spills. That's the nature of light, travels at tremendous speeds. And the other is framing, limiting. And this is a simple metaphor that I thought of, and that's why I call this class Light and Shadows. When you work cinematically with lighting experts, they don't have anything other than light to work with. That they're working with light. But light in and of itself can simply wash the picture out. I need to be able to have the light cast in a particular way. I need to be able to control the light. It's very important to control the light. In these beautiful stages in theaters, they don't have natural light because natural light can't be controlled. That's a problem. They want to have controlled lighting. So you have to create the light can only be effective when it's framed by the shadows. But you don't actually have anything dark. There isn't a dark marker. There isn't a, you don't build an apparatus to cast shadows or to limit the light. 
by causing the light to come from a certain place, the shadows are, so to speak, the flip side of light. Illumination will cause shadows. Now, of course, this is a moot. It's a moot kind of metaphor because a mitzvah is not a shadow. I understand that, obviously. But the reason that I use that terminology of light and shadows is because the shadow play, it's like this sacred shadow play of at once diffusion, but at the same time casting the light. It's almost like before limiting it, casting it in a certain way so that the light is effectively communicated, not overwhelming the subject, causing a whiteout or a washout in which the camera has nothing to capture. And this is a metaphor, a lame metaphor, but a metaphor for us to understand the notion of Orot and Kalim and Atzilus. And that's the truth about everything that the Alter Rebbe developed in this chapter. That's the truth in the way it sounds, in the way it's, if you will, articulated in the world of sublime holiness, in the world of Atzilut, in the world of spiritual pre-consciousness. There, it's the same truth. We, in our reality, it's called Tzimtzum Vehispashtos, limiting light and expression of light, meaning meaningful, engaged, an experience. And in Atsulos, it's called Orot and Kalim. It's the same thing, my friends. It's exactly the same thing. Just different terminology, just a different world. What has Dalton ever accomplished there? Amazing, he's accomplished. First of all, if you were a big Kabbalist, and you go, one second, where's your source, Alter Rebbe, for this? Alter Rebbe says, really? You didn't? The truth of Atsilus is a wow, I didn't even think of it. It is the truth of Atsilus. Or a person would say, is this the meaning of or Yeah, funny you should say, it is the meaning of Orot of Kilimanzar. Or a person will say, how do I understand this idea? Is this just, just in this frame? No, it's in all worlds. It's, a, it's an absolute truism. It just gets expressed in different dimensions, different realities, different ways. And no matter which way you choose to look at this footnote, you just learned a whole bunch of Kabbalah. You now learned about the world of Atsilas. You know when the Alter Rebbe used to write about Atsilas? He'd get so excited he couldn't even finish writing the word. He would be so overwhelmed by the profundity, of the, the sublime godliness, a world where there's only, there is no other, so to speak. A world of only divine light. And another thing this does for us, on a deeper level is, that now we come to the realization that that which we said before, that regardless of whether the mitzvah is mindless or mindful, on the level of dveikut, it's the same. We say, right, because on the level of atzilut, the kalim and the orot are all part of atzilut. It's all part of godliness. Only one illuminates and one restrains or darkles, but it's the exact same thing. So orot and kalim of atzilut are not two realities because there can't be any diversity or division in atzilut. Atzilut is like light that spills from a source. Take the source away, the light is gone. The light is a perfect reflection of the luminary. The effulgence comes from the source, the luminary. It can't be seen as separate or apart or different. So, so when we understand the way things are in Atzilut, the action of the mitzvah in its origin of Atzilut and the intention of the mitzvah in its origin of Atzilut are both Atzilut. 
And yet, the distinctions are still there. But organically and essentially speaking, they represent the same matter, if you will, or non-matter. They're all godliness. So it is with the mitzvah. The mitzvah is all godliness. Mitzvah is pure godliness. The result of the mitzvah, dvikut, cleaving to Hashem. That's what the mitzvah is. However, the notion of where more light is seen or felt, the notion of an experience, ah, here you've derived a world of difference. In Atzilut, Orot, and Kalim, in our world, light and shadows, the meaningfulness of the mitzvah, and the body, the actual mitzvah itself. And hopefully, learning about this today helps you appreciate the deeper truths of our Holy Torah. It helps you relate to sublime, lofty, esoteric ideas. And ultimately, learning about things like this uplifts us, it inspires us, it cleanses us, and it brings us closer to Hashem Yisbaruch. And when Mashiach will come, this won't just be a theory. We'll actually experience it, and we'll see it, and we'll know it. And I once heard that when Mashiach will come, the difference between those who studied Hasidus and the difference between those who didn't will be a simple guttural sound. Aha! The aha! When you learn Hasidus, and you learn about this in a way which you can actually understand it, but not experience it. And then Mashiach will come and to Hashem very speedily. will say, Aha! That's what we were learning about. You'll know exactly what's going on. But people who sadly didn't have a chance or chose not to learn to see this, Mashiach will come and, What's going on? What, what, what is this? I'm experiencing, but I don't even know what I'm experiencing. And this is a foretaste. This is the foretaste of the era of universal knowledge of Hashem and studying Chassidus poises us to be able to fully experience the revelation that will come to us in Mirza Hashem, Bimheira, Obi Amenu, Amen. Thanks for joining us.